You know, when you put a seed in the ground, you know what you see? Dirt. Right? If you want want to harvest, you put seeds in the ground and all you see is dirt. And then you might fertilize it, so then all you see is dirt and poop. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And then you might add water, and you water the dirt. And there's faith involved, right? Because you don't see nothing for a while. But something happens when the water and the nutrients in the soil and the sunshine are at work and life comes out of the seed. And it was essentially dead and then all of a sudden a little green shoot bursts through the soil and the fertilizer. And then it goes really fast it seems like. And if you plant out a bunch of seeds before long you have a, a field of green. And maybe it's flowering and it's beautiful. And I I felt just to remind us as we are approaching reading and studying and learning from the Bible that we are sowing seeds and we can anticipate a crop. And in today, what we're going to do today is going to be involved, probably involve a fair amount of reading the Bible and talking about it. more teaching than inspirational preaching, teaching and just reading and looking for application for our lives. And I just want to remind us that in this setting and also the settings, hopefully day by day in your own life, you're planting seed. As a shepherd, a pastor of God's flock, one of the concerns I have and pray for you all is that you are planting seeds. Because if you're not planting seeds in the soil of your life, when you need the harvest, there'll be nothing there. You know, and sometimes simply the the discipline of planting seeds is the discipline of taking time with God's word, the Bible, reading it, and sometimes saying to yourself or hearing a voice that says to you, "You got nothing out of that today." Have you ever done that? You read the Bible and you felt like you got nothing out of it. Well, you don't know what you got out of it because all you're looking at is dirt right now. But there might be a seed underneath the soil. That's, that's grown. Do you make sense? So you, you can read the Bible regularly, praying for God to give you revelation and you know, just a joyful experience in the Bible today. You might get nothing but the look of dirt. But be assured, there is a seed sown. And as a pastor, I pray for you and I encourage you right now, sow seed. One of the saddest things that will happen in your life is when you need some harvest, you realize that last planting season you didn't plant anything. Or maybe all you planted was Game of Thrones. <laughs> or whatever else is on TV. I don't really have TV, so I don't, I, I don't know what, what people watch. Netflix, you got your Netflix, and you, I guess you binge watch now? Are you watching an entire season in a... Let's pray and, and <laughs> Lord, we, we want to approach your word in faith that the seed sown will produce a harvest. So come today, Holy Spirit, in the study of your word. You've met us already in our time of singing to you and worshiping. You've spoken to us. Already you've blessed us and we thank you. Now bless us and grow us and transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
So some of you are, are joining us just for the first time today. Some of you um, haven't been here a lot. We're actually reading together a book of the Bible called um, Philippians. It's, a, it's written to a group of people in a city called Philippi. And, oh, I, I, I printed out something for you, and you probably got it when you came in, a picture that says, looks like this. This may be useful. It's kind of like what I'm going to say in short it's a lot of ink on there, actually, but it's kind of a lot of what I'm going to say. It might be useful for you to follow along. It's got some scripture we're going to read. Preferred if you had your own Bible and you open that up when we look around. It's great for studying. But um, well, let me just add this to my little seed talk that I just said. The, the scriptures, the Bible, and contemporary prophetic voices uh, all tell us that in the end times, the last days before the return of Jesus, that two things are happening and that we're experiencing them right now. An increase in the kingdom of darkness raising opposition to the work of God. Um, evil increasing in the world. And at the same time, the glory of God, the outpouring of his spirit around the world increasing for revival. Darkness and light happening at the same time. And where the darkness is dark, the light is brighter. And it's as that kind of situation, that scenario increases, the people of God need a harvest. They need the seed. They need the seed sown. And some of the things that we're reading in this book to the Philippians, I feel in here and a little up here too, are designed to prepare us for times that are difficult and times at the same time that are full of the glory of God and the presence of God. As a people. And maybe you've sensed some of that too. It feels like we're learning things that are really important for the times that we live in and will be living in tomorrow. So maybe think that way as we've been, as we've been studying. Also, if you didn't know that we have a podcast, you can pick up previous talks if you're, you're wanting to learn. It's called gracetalks.org. Big thanks always to Barry Young for taking our messages and putting them up on the podcast. So... Yeah, Barry, all right. Um, do you see at the top of those notes there, it says a brief history of the Philippians story. So we're going we're gonna to be reading in the second chapter only, starting at verse 19. But, but here's kind of a backdrop of things that we've talked about and to give you some context. So a guy by the name of Paul, an apostle, a church planner, along with Timothy, Luke, Silas, at least we know those names, go to a Roman city, it's not in Rome, it's outside of Rome, but it's a colony that looks like Rome, has all the, the, the feel, the, the kind of building, the government structure, and the wealth and the power of Rome called Philippi, and they start a church there. Um, while they're there, at least Paul and Silas suffer some severe persecution. They get um, arrested, they get beaten severely, they get thrown in jail. But in the midst of all that, a church has started. The church is the church to whom the letter that we're reading is written. And the Philippians are continuing to have some suffering. We've been reading about Paul is now, has left Philippi and he's in Rome and he's in prison himself and he's writing this letter. The Philippians know about Paul being in Rome and in this time it's not quite as posh as Americans' prison system. Like if you'd like to eat, you better hope that a friend comes and brings some food because they don't have the prison kitchen. So you're dependent on family and friends to come and visit you and serve you and take care of you. So Paul's, it's kind of a loose, I think at this point it might be that he's under house arrest. 
in Rome. So he's got some freedom and, and friends can come and visit him, but he's still in prison. He's in chains, he actually said, so might be more in the, in the Mamertine prison there in Rome. I'm, I'm not sure on the history, sorry about that. Just know that he's in, in chains. The Philippians say, you know what, let's send one of us to help him. We love Paul. He started our church. They send a guy from their church. Probably, we're going to guess maybe he's an elder in the church, but we don't know. His name is Epaphroditus. You've heard that name, Epaphroditus. They send him with money. He's like, they're supporting the missionary. They, but they can't send it via the internet. They actually have a courier. So Epaphroditus, and almost definitely some people that aren't mentioned are with him. He, they wouldn't send him with a pile of money, 40-day journey to Rome on his own. And on the way there... Um, he gets really ill. But he continues the journey. And apparently one of the people from the, the team that are with him have gone back to Philippi and told the church there, Epaphroditus got really sick. And it's a 40-day journey. So to get any kind of mail, a courier has to go 40 days. So you're not hearing updates really fast, right? And in, in our day and age, if you get an infection and it doesn't, clear itself, you call the doctor, they'll visit the doctor, he gives you a prescription for an antibiotic, and you're pretty confident you're going to get better, right? Um, and if, if you don't get better, you know that you can go to the hospital and they're going to give you more care and you're going to get better, right? Okay, in this day and age, if you get pretty sick, you're probably going to die. It's a different worldview. So you have to have that in your mind when you're thinking about the context of what we're reading. So there's fear. Epaphroditus is good chance. He's not going to make it. He's there. They love him. But he went and continued on the journey. Um, when he's in Rome, visiting with Paul, serving Paul, helping Paul, he gets better. And apparently, it doesn't say it specifically, but the, the language indicates that it was a healing from God, a supernatural healing. They prayed for him. God had mercy. God healed him. But he's kind of worried now about his friends at the church back home that don't know that he's healed, that are worried that he's going to die. Are you feeling this? Okay, imagine, you know, if someone dear to us, that we sent a long journey, and there's no contact. And we wonder, did they, did they die? And we're praying, and, you know, maybe his wife is home. I don't know. She's worried. The kids... Flesh this out in your imagination. That's what's going on. So Paul now has Epaphroditus with him and Timothy's there with him. And so Paul um, decides that he wants to send Epaphroditus back so they won't worry and he, he sends a letter with him to read to the church back home. And that's the letter we're reading. And in the letter, Paul is talking to them about um, he's encouraging them, rejoicing with them, talking about rejoicing in the midst of suffering, but also exhorting them because he's found out that some of them have some conflict. Can you imagine a group of people with conflict? <laughs> and some of them have selfish ambition. Can you believe it? Christians. <laughs> so Paul tells them, you guys, you need to stand as one person united in love, serving one another, no selfish ambition. You need to have a heart of Jesus in the way that you treat each other so that you also treat the world around you and present the message of the gospel that way. In fact, he says, stand as one man contending for the faith of the gospel. Um, and he lets them know in this letter that he's sending back with Epaphroditus that he's soon going to send 
Timothy, who's his representative, who has authority from Paul the Apostle, to see how they're doing, sort of code for check up on you. <laughs> and Timothy's going to come back and report to Paul how they're doing, and hopefully it's going to be a good report. So when he says, I'm sending Timothy, there's a sense of, oh, Timothy's going to check and see if we're obeying the letter. Did, did you catch all that? That's what's going on. So when we read this, that's kind of the feel. We're going to read this passage entirely and then come back and kind of read it phrase by phrase to get some application for us. Because one of the things that I noticed as I was studying this passage, preparing for, you know, asking the Lord, what will we talk about as a family and, you know, how are you going to train us, was that as Paul talks in this letter now about Timothy, about Epaphroditus, and about his own story, it lines up, his wording lines up remarkably with the instruction he's just given in the things that we've talked about in the previous weeks. And it really looks almost too much like Paul is purposely using Timothy Epaphroditus and his own story as living examples of how the church is supposed to live, which is a good way to train, right? So that's how I'm approaching, you know, what, how I'm, I'm wrapping this up. And, and we've used the phrase courageous joy to describe the whole letter. Just, you know, I always look for, is there a couple words I can use to kind of boil down what the message is? And I use that because this, this book of the Bible, more than I think any other book, has calls to rejoice in the midst of suffering. If you find the word rejoice, like a verb, you rejoice. Raise a hallelujah like we just did in our singing. Um, or be joyful, or you ought to be joyful. In, right in the same sentences, in the midst, in the face of suffering, imprisonment, difficulty, opposition, persecution, you see this courage to have joy in the midst of trouble. That's the language that's coming out. So the way I'm going to try to bring this for our, our minds to remember is Timothy's example of courageous joy, Epaphroditus' example of courageous joy, and Paul's example of courageous joy. So God, that's how this is laid out. And now that you know that, I'm going to say it more thoroughly with the scripture. And you have that piece of paper if you're wanting to you know, keep studying the Bible. Um, you have tracks to run on. So here we go. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon. So this is the letter going back with Epaphroditus. That I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I things ho see how things go with me. Uh, in other words, he's waiting a trial to see if he's going to be acquitted or executed. As soon as I find out how things go with me, I'm going to send Timothy. And I'm confident, I really am confident, the Lord's going to release me and I'm going to come to and see you face to face. But until then, I think it's necessary that I send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. Those three words I'm going to hone in on in just a bit. My, work, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, who's also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs, for he longs for all of you. And he's distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and he almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy 
and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. He, by the way, he risked his life by getting sick and continuing on the journey even though he was sick. He continued in the ministry and it literally was a risk of his life. Finally, my brothers, and this is in chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it's a safeguard to you. And he's going to say the things, same things later, rejoice in the Lord. And, and now... Here's another example. That was the example of Timothy, example of Epaphroditus. Now Paul's going to tell his own story as an example of standing and contending for the faith of the gospel. Here's the language. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Who knows what he's talking about? I'll tell you in a little bit. But if you're like, I don't know where he just went. Who are the dogs? Mutilators of the flesh. What? I'll explain that in just a bit, but hang, circle that or something. For it is we who are the circumcised. I will make this make sense. I better tell you. Um, in Acts 15, we're told that a group of people, Jewish believers in Jesus the Messiah, have been talking to Gentile believers, saying, you guys, you got to convert full on to Judaism to be a believer. And men, you got I'm sorry guys, but you got to be circumcised. And the Gentiles didn't do circumcision. So as an adult, that was kind of costly, right? You got to be circumcised and obey all the law of Moses. And they went around saying just believing is not enough. There are some other hoops you got to jump through if you want to know the Lord. You got to follow the food laws, the holiday laws, the all of the rules that the Jewish people if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be saved. And the body, the elders and the apostles met together and said, no, no, the Gentiles don't have to do that. They have to believe in Jesus Christ, just like we did. We are saved by faith alone plus nothing. Jesus does the work, not our religious efforts. That's what that's talking about. And those people he calls the mutilators of the flesh as a way derogatively to say those who are demanding that you men get circumcised to be a Christian, ah, they're, they're, they're dogs. Which is a play on words, by the way, because Jews would call Gentiles dogs. And now he's flipped it around on them. Get that? Um, For it is we who are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. It's a spiritual thing. Who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Then he switches and says, you know what? If there was anyone who could have confidence in the flesh, I'd outdo them all. I don't, but I could because... I have all the heritage. I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like the law required. I'm of the people of Israel. And I'm not just of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a very special tribe. And I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm like, you know, what we, I guess in America you'd say, I'm a patriot if you're a really great American, right? I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. Those, that's the top of the heap of people that understood, studied, taught, and kept the law of God, the law of Moses. As for zeal, you want zealous? I used to persecute Christians. I put them in jail and have some of them killed. You want zealous? I'll outdo you with zeal. I was zealous. As for legalistic righteousness faultless. You couldn't find fault in me. But 
Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things and I count them but rubbish, but trash in the street. Everything that I've lost, I think of it as trash compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes not from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ, really know him, and the power of his resurrection, and even the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in the way he died. And so, somehow to attain to the righteousness and to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, let's back up now and read that again, phrase by phrase, and see what we can learn. You're such a good class, you look so attentive. <laughs> so now, back to where we started with Timothy's example. The heart, I'm talking about the heart of courageous joy. What's at the heart of it? And uh, you see in your notes I have, from Timothy's example, we'll read it again, but like bullet points. Here are some things that the heart of courageous joy is like. So Paul started out by saying, I have no one like him, like Timothy, who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So the heart that's going to get you through difficult times with courage and joy includes this, a genuine, active interest in how the people of the church of Jesus Christ are doing. That's the example I take from there. In life and ministry, and by the way, Jesus cares about it. He said, they, don't they take interest in the things that Jesus cares about. How about you? Uh, do you take an active, genuine interest in how people are doing in the church of Jesus Christ? You care to know. You care to help. You're concerned when they lose. You rejoice when they win. You pray when they need prayer. When they're hurting, you go to help. This is part of the heart, I believe, of courageous joy. Timothy, I have no one else like him. He takes a genuine interest in your welfare, in how things are going with you. And here's the language earlier. If you had your Bible open, you could back up to verse 4 of chapter 2 where it says, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And now here's Timothy. He does just that. That's why I'm thinking Paul kind of purposely is laying out examples for us to follow in this letter. Genuine interest. The second one is um, from verse 20 where he said, I have no one else like him who takes generous generous." can't talk genuine interest in your welfare. That is one of those phrases that loses something in the translation. When he said, I have no one else like him, this is written in Greek, by the way, and the Greek word is, I have no one who is like-souled, like-minded. And remember, Paul said to the church, I think around verse 3 of this chapter, I want you to be like-minded, one in heart, one in spirit, one in purpose. And Paul's saying, I have no one who is of the same mind as me like Timothy. We are of the same heart, 
of the same spirit, of one mind, and one purpose. And what, what I take out of, of that part is Timothy chose to get in unity around the purpose of the one who was called to be the leader that he connected with in the body of Christ. Did you follow that? Um, the heart of courageous joy isn't just off doing their own thing. They're part of a community of faith, a community of worshipers, where God has established some kind of leadership, and they have joined in one heart, in one spirit, along with the leaders and the rest of the body of the group that they're called to, to do the ministry and mission of Jesus in that place at that time. If you lack joy and courage in the midst of trouble, or you do in the future, you might ask yourself, am I just running all by myself? Or am I of one heart, one mind, one spirit, caring to find out about the group that God's called me to be part of and the leaders that God's called to lead the group that I'm called to be part of and what we're called to be doing in the city that we're called to be part of. You with me? Folks, we're not just a country club. We're an army. We're an army of healers. We're an army of lovers. We're an army of blessers. We're an army of embracers of lonely. We're an army of feeding the hungry. We have a purpose. Join the purpose. And it might give you some courage in your love. So, the next one was, he serves as an apprentice son. This is an interesting phrase. He serves as a son with his father. Different culture again, so you miss it if you don't know just a little bit of the culture. In our culture, as our kids are of the age where they're going to go pursue a career or a trade or a job, you know, we hope that they go to a trade school, they go get a good job and a good apprentice, we send them off to college so they can go make their way, right? Different culture in the, in the ancient times when a son basically becomes the father. And that's expected and normal. Ever heard of names like, um, I can't even think now, blacksmith? Or, um, what's the name that has son? Peterson. What's the name that has a trade with son at the end of it? Edison. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> Miles. You guys are drawing blanks with me. In any case, just, we'll just say that... Stanford and sons. Thank you, Snake. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I have a picture. <laughs> Ancient history, family, son grows up to learn the trade of his father as an apprentice till someday he takes over the family trade. So if your father's a blacksmith, guess what you're going to do in life? You're going to be a blacksmith. You're going to be the village blacksmith because the village needs a blacksmith and your family is the blacksmith family. And you might even change your last name to Smith because that's what you do. That's the ancient way. So Paul is saying, Timothy serves like a son with his father because he's like a son to me. I'm called to go do the work of an apostle and plant churches and care for them. And Timothy comes alongside of me and he's trusted and he 
is a disciple becoming like the discipler. Courageous joy, the heart of courageous joy, you become like the one who's discipling you. Does that make sense? That's not too far out there for you? It's not our culture, but it's the culture of the kingdom. So then he switches on to Epaphroditus' example. He calls him my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. I highlighted when, they, when we read that. And just some thoughts about that. Um, Epaphroditus, or the heart of courageous joy, understands and lives like a brother in the family of God. Because shared experience that you and I have as daughters and sons of Jesus, daughters and sons of God by Jesus, forgiven of our sins by Jesus, once we are lost, now we're found by Jesus. We have something in that relationship that goes deeper than family, brothers and sisters. Have any of you experienced that, by the way? Oh, some of you have? Okay, that was a, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go on a tangent just because it's fun. Last night, <laughs> I woke up in the middle of the night very cold. Um, that happens to me at night for some reason. My body gets cold. So I got out of bed to get a, a fourth blanket or a third blanket, a wool blanket. I look over and Kim is on top of the cover sweating. <laughs> She's, you're really getting a blanket as I woke her up. <laughs> We're different. In the body of Christ, we're different. And it's probably the only place where you and I may be different genders. We may be different races. We may be different nationalities. We may come from different socioeconomic statuses. We may have different life experiences. We may not even speak the same language. But because we both have come to Jesus, there is a unique depth of relationship. I've done a little traveling internationally, and I find this wherever I go. I meet someone who has found relationship with Jesus, and they just like me have found relationship with Jesus, and we instantly have a heart connection that's deeper than blood can give you. It's really rich. Now, if you understand that, it affects the way we interact with, love each other, care for each other, we are one family, both in a group like this and with all believers around the globe and across the street and down the street in the next city over. Know this, your brother is never your enemy. If you have conflict, someone says something against the way you believe because you believe differently, you know, but they're a follower of Jesus, they're not your enemy. Your brother's never your enemy. So Paphroditus is my brother and my fellow worker and my fellow soldier. I love what Hebrews says. Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That's why Jesus himself is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. So Jesus himself sees us as brother. It's amazing. Co-laborer, fellow worker, I just, you know, in some of the um, commentaries, came up with one phrase, a team player. Team player. Are you part of the team? If you're not and you need courageous joy, join the team. And think of yourself as a team player. Listen to this language that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? There was some division in Corinth about who they liked best. You know, I like Apollos best. I like Paul best. Well, I like Peter. Well, I like Jesus 
You know, they went around like that. And Paul was responding to that in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, they're only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, God made it grow. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. They're teammates, they're on the same team. And each will be rewarded according to his own labor. We are God's fellow workers. That's the picture. Paul says, Epaphroditus, a man of courageous joy, is a fellow worker with me. He fights on one team. Fight side by side in spiritual battle. My fellow soldier. So in Christ, if you haven't figured this out, you are not just on a cruise ship, you're on a battleship. And it's headed toward the Persian Gulf, it feels like. There are, there's war at hand because the kingdom of God has come in war against the kingdom of darkness. And there are battles, spiritual battles. And Paul said, Epaphroditus, in his courageous joy, is a fellow soldier at arms, a comrade in arms with me. Um, I'm, I'm thinking just, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, one of you called me because you were in a spiritual battle at your work and you wanted a little bit of my thoughts on the situation and then we prayed together. And we went arm in arm in battle against the kingdom of darkness with the weaponry of prayer. Now how can you fight shoulder to shoulder with a fellow soldier if you don't even know about the battles they're facing? You want courageous joy, think of yourself as a fellow soldier and think of everyone you know is probably in a spiritual battle and they probably could use you to pull out your gun and join them in fighting against their enemy. You know, band of brothers kind of picture. We're in a war, we need each other, we're not solo. And in the days to come, if times get harder, we're going to need more and more to know each other and fight together the battles that we face. So, so if you want courageous joy, be a fellow soldier. And then finally, um, Epaphroditus really fulfilled what Paul had told them about caring for others more than yourself. He actually he was so sick he almost died and he wasn't even thinking about that. He was worried about the people that were worried about him for being so sick that he almost died. Huh? He cared more about them than about himself. That's the heart of courageous joy. Now Paul's example. How are we doing? Oh, we can wrap this up, I think. So he said all that stuff I said and kind of explained about the, the circumcision. The, that group is often called the Judaizers. So Paul's example of courageous joy is one who rejoices in the Lord, worships by the Spirit of God like we just were doing, and glories or boasts in Christ, putting no confidence in his own ability, in his own ability to be righteous, in his own ability, his wisdom, his own philosophy, his own religious expertise, his own anything. If you have possibly been under the misconception that to know God, to be quote-unquote saved, is to do good things, to not do bad, good, bad things, um, and somehow make the balance right so that you're right with God, you've been lied to. Salvation and relationship with God is a very unfair thing because it's all on God and nothing on me. And I can boast of nothing I've done. I can only boast of everything that Jesus has done. He saved me. He forgave me of my sins. He gave me a purpose. He gave me a destiny. He walks with me. He fills me with his spirit. He encourages me when I'm discouraged. 
He fights for me. He fills me up. He heals me. He strengthens me. He walks with me. I'm never alone. I don't need to fear because God is with me. And I can't boast of that other than boasting in the Lord and glorying in Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. You want courageous joy? Learn how to boast in Christ and have no confidence in yourself. Um, I told you a little about Acts 15. I would encourage you just to go to Acts 15 and read that. Um, valuing intimate relationship with Jesus and his lordship above everything else. That was in those next words where he said, if anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I'd have more. But he said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Can you do that? If you've lost something, because you've decided to follow Jesus? Let me change the wording of that. If you haven't lost something because you've decided to follow Jesus, you might want to check if you've really followed Jesus. Because <laughs> generally you're going to lose something. You might just lose the ability to party like you wanted to. <laughs> That'd be a small thing. But let's use that as an example. I used to party hardy, you might say, and now I follow Jesus and I don't do those things anymore. Is the next thought, I consider them like street trash in comparison with knowing Jesus. It actually was no loss at all. But I value above everything my relationship with Jesus as brother and Jesus as my Lord who I will serve with every breath, every day of my life, with joy because it's no loss. With joy because I'm not earning anything. With joy because he already approves me. He already loves me. He already takes pleasure in me. So I've lost nothing, even though I've lost everything. That's the heart of courageous joy.